I'm Evan Applegate, I'm a cartographer, and on very expensive maps I talk to better cartographers. This week you'll hear from Gregor Turk, an artist in Atlanta who explores the fundamental qualities of mapping through ceramic sculptures, photographs, and mixed media installations. I'm Gregor Turk, I'm a visual artist and sculptor based in Atlanta, and I often incorporate mapping imagery, cultural signage, and marking place into my work. I started making maps, I guess, when I was in grade school and all through high school. The margins of my books were filled with continents that collided and explorations of made-up continents. So I was always drawing on my margin and daydreaming. Yeah, that was sort of the extent. It wasn't, I didn't major in uh, anything that directly related to mapping, although I wasn't able to take a cartography class or even a geography class. I, I went to a small liberal arts college in Memphis. Rhodes College. And uh, so it was after college, I uh, immediately took a class at Georgia State when I came back to Atlanta. And uh, I learned a lot about how to make a map properly, which was great because I knew I didn't want to do that. But at least I knew the basics of, of true map making. So uh, from there, it was always about uh, working with clay. Uh, when I would first make anything ceramic, I would draw a map on it. I learned how to make a tracing or some other thing of a, of a relatively accurate map, but, but nothing like a, a paper map. So you had some exposure to formal cartography and thought, no, not for me. It was never about the actual geographic information that, that interests me. It was always about what that information tells us about ourselves as individuals and culture. I always focused on the, the fundamental qualities of mapping, like the mysteriousness, the inherent biases, cultural authoritativeness and the ability to simultaneously represent distort re, uh, reality. So it was more about maps than actual maps, if that makes sense. It's a very strange cultural artifact. It is. It's a very telling artifact. It's a very basic form of communication. But uh, it wasn't until 1992 that I set out and traveled the length of the section of the 49th parallel that forms the border between the United States and Canada. So. It's about 2,000 kilometers or 1,270 miles, and I had been thinking about it for years since since I was in graduate school and um, came across a set of um, boundary maps at the Harvard Library and just fascinated me. Originally, it was a Landsat image um, that depicted, um, you can actually see the border show up on a Landsat photograph because of subsidized crops in the Montana area versus Alberta. Uh, and so wheat was grown more on one side than on the other. And so it's like, I, I just got this desire to, to, to find out what the border actually looked like. Well, it's a, it's a 20 foot wide clear cut. So I always describe it as a power line, clear cut without a power line. In certain areas, there's, there's really nothing to, to clear cut. In other areas, it's, it's hard to maintain. And so the, the U.S. and the Canadian government have the International Boundary Commission and they maintain that border. And so uh, in the equinox of 1992, I set out on foot and traveled the first, first 90 miles. And that was mainly because there's this thing called the Great Russo Swamp, which runs for probably eight or 10 miles. And I thought, you know, it's gonna be a lot easier to walk, walk on that than to try to go through it. I mean, I was, I had no idea what I was getting into, and this is back when uh, a GPS device was only available through the military, and it was the size of a, a backpack and weighed about 70 pounds. But anyways, so I set out and then um, 
came back up on the solstice in June and then uh, started biking the border. And so I was going east to west, staying on the border as, as best I could. So there's no such thing as no man's land. Uh, you're either in Canada or the United States. At every place there was a road crossing, I would check in with both Canadian and the U.S. side. And I would, they would ask, well, where, which side are you on? And it's like, well, it's the side I'm leaving from. I will stay in that country. But in fact, I would sleep sometimes with my feet in Canada and my head in the U.S. or split my body the other way because there was not a whole lot going on in the woods directly on the border. But uh, I ended up traveling about 1,800 miles on bike and 250 on foot and then did a documentary that was uh, broadcast on public television and then um, three years of artwork that, that focused on the border. Were you shooting while you traveled? I did. I shot, it wasn't film, but it was uh, high eight. I got a decent amount of footage to put together a 26 minute video. I actually talked to Georgia Public Television before I went and had a conversation. I said, this is my idea. They told me that it, you know, what I needed to shoot it on and what they would do to consider it. And so I came back and I gave them some of the raw footage and they said, uh, yep. And so they, uh, I was able to uh, collaborate with a editor and then a co-producer and was able to, to put it out. But, you know, it'd be a totally different thing now with, with all the editing uh, software that exists. It definitely defined my obsession with mapping because I wanted to sort of get a sense of what the world's longest border was like. I actually got to go out with the, the, one of the surveying teams. It was really interesting to see them in operation. I also interviewed the, uh, the U.S. counterpart of of the Boundary Commission and, you know, just proposed the idea, you know, do you think the border will all exist? Do you think it might, you know, eventually become inconsequential? And he was just sort of baffled by my, my question. But, you know, borders are always shifting. Uh, but, you know, he was such a, uh, I won't say bureaucrat, but he was very focused on, on his vision of what the border is. Because the trade of surveyor is very few de novo stuff. You look at what's before and then you trace off that. Exactly. Trigonometry plus law plus the power of the state. Exactly. It's like asking a fisherman, do you ever think we'll never need boats or water? I should have known that I would get a response like that, but I was just, I was just sort of interested in where his, where his head was. Okay, and that was in 92. Yeah, it was 92 to 95. The exhibition of the work, there was a lot of artwork. It was photography, a lot of sculpture, drawings. And, and the sculptures were, I did a whole series, what I called Monumaps. And they were probably just under four feet high or long, or, um, you know, some, some laid down, some uh, stood up freestanding, some went on the wall. So they were all different types of orientations. Each Monumap essentially mapped one degree along the border. And so this was my opportunity to sort of push the idea of what mapping is. And so I had collected a lot of things along the way. I would get uh, a vial of water from, a, of course, from the beginning to the end, but then also along lakes and rivers that I would pass. I'd pick up pine cones and rocks and I'd mark where I got them. It was, it was all numerically marked. And then I would mail them back in groups uh, to Atlanta along along the route. And then I had those and then I used them to create different things. I did one long wall piece that was all in beakers and flasks that emulated the topography of the of the 49th parallel and in it were different objects or waters things like that and then i did another uh going back to the monument maps i did one map that was a smelling map so it was an old factory in that it had pine needles and berries and uh, just different things along this one 
60 mile section of the border that I focused on. It was sort of a repository. So, you know, just again, pushing the idea of what a, a map can be. All the, the pieces were trapezoid shaped because once you're in the, what's called the vista, uh, which is the clear cut, it, it's like a perspective drawing, you know, with, with your vanishing point. You've got these, these lines coming in from the ground and from the tree line. And so that is, you know, you, you know when you're in the border. It's not like, I mean, you're either in it or you're not, because as soon as you're outside of that vista, you can't see those converging lines. So it's a pretty powerful space and it's a linear space. And so it's not a specific point, but, go, you know, as I said, it's a 1,270 mile place. Anyway, so I picked up on that idea of the trapezoid of, of converging lines. And so that's what these monument maps were. And I did some other things. I did go back to the border. And at one point I took a bunch of clay slabs, laid them down on the, in the snowy, uh, right on the border and made a casting of that section of the border, went back and then <laughs> fired those and then made a paper cast off of that. So just white paper. But when you look at it, like the straw or a clump of snow may look like a mountain range. So the scale is completely different than what it was. But again, sort of pushing the idea and sort of the, I don't know, somehow I'm just drawn to the absurdity of mapping, just this, this idea that you can contain the world in a book or a piece of paper. It's like that infinite library, the one-to-one -one scale map. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, there's certainly uh, a number of writers that have, have dealt with, with that concept um, very poetically, I might add. One thing I wanted to get out of you is an end-to-end -end of Latitudes, the 86-foot-long piece. How did you create that whole thing from concept to install? So that piece is at the Atlanta airport. They were adding on two more gates to the end of the, um, or e-concourse, which was uh, at the time the international concourse. There's now an F as well. But um, essentially it was the perimeter walls of 20,000 square feet, which is a pretty amazing opportunity. And so one of the walls of the four gates was windowless. And I just thought about, oh, what if you could see the entire world, you know? So I made a strip map. And so that was the 30th through 35th parallel, which is roughly the state of Georgia's north and south border. And so it, the map starts in Atlanta and it ends in Atlanta. And so it's ceramic. It's only 18 inches high, but 86 feet long. It's clay that I rolled out. And then I, I texture a lot with coral, with rocks, uh, different ways to get sort of that Landsat feeling, but in a three-dimensional form. Uh, clearly, I didn't have a studio or a table long enough, so it was all uh, cut. The tiles were cut at a slight diagonal and just continued those cuts and added more clay and, and just just did it that way. So it's a fun piece, and, and uh, I'll go there and I'll see people that are like their faces up in it because you can touch it. It's great. Uh, you, can, you can walk it and you can just sort of take it all in. You know, it's a lot of it is the ocean, but it goes through North Africa. It goes through what was once called the axis of evil. It goes through Iraq, Iran, all the way to a little bit of Korea, through China, the Himalayas, and then back around to LA and Mexico and back to Atlanta. And you're taking the colors off Landsat photos? Exactly, yes. I'm using sort of um, wilder palette, I suppose. But you know, you think about that, those Landsat photographs are all color induced. I mean, that's it, not, you know, their vegetation is often red on a, uh, on some of the older Landsat maps. And then the other thing I did for the airport, so there was a, a section on that same side 
and I did 18 inch by 18 inch tablets of different cities along that latitude. So it might be Baghdad, Beirut, Kabul, different cities. And uh, what I really wanted to do, it was funny, they, they, this is this will date it. There was still a telephone bank. And I, I said, well, can we put some of these over the telephone bank? And like, it'd be great if somebody was on the phone talking to whatever city that was that happened to be above them. I mean, the chances of that would be probably pretty slim, but still, I just thought that would be a, a great way to, I mean, the whole thing about an airport is being in two places at one time, the place you're physically, but the place that you're going, you know, you're already mentally halfway there. But um, anyways, uh, I was told well, those telephones would be coming out pretty soon. So, and they, and they were within a couple of years, they were all gone. Um, and it's hard to find a payphone anywhere at this point. But um, the other side of the, of the concourse, I had 64 different map symbols that I had taken from atlases from that same parallel. So, you know, I looked at Indian maps, I looked at Pakistani maps, um, Moroccan maps, all sorts of maps. And then I, I got um, looked at the legend or the key. And I know you've done a piece that, that focuses on the various keys. And so just taking those tiny little, what we think of the nine symbols, and then blowing them up to anywhere between two and four feet and rendering them in clay, and then giving them color, you know, was, was a cool thing in that, you know, we, again, we think of these as benign, but they're anything but, you know, they're the, they're the agenda, uh, they're, they're part of the agenda of the map and the map maker and the culture of that, you know, what, what are the priorities? And, you know, looking at some of the maps, which were aeronautical charts, you know, you've got iconography and symbols that are not what most people are familiar with, like, you know, amphitheaters and the heights of different types of top towers, you know, things that are going to, you know, obstruct a, an airplane or, you know, cause, cause issues. So just, just the different cultures. And the only thing that I was asked in doing it, so I, I, I looked at, um, you know, it's like Sikh temples and Shinto shrines and cathedrals and mosques and just the symbols for that and, and cathedrals. And I was, I was requested that there would be no hierarchy with how I placed them. So those I just sort of placed at random heights. Um, but uh, I thought that was an interesting, an interesting request. The map is implicit hierarchy. What's on there is what you deem important. Yeah, and that's what I love about just the authority of maps, you know, that, that we just believe them, you know, and, and it's, it's fact, and they're anything but that. Oh, it's so true. I talked to this guy, Andrew Lynch, who had a hobby of taking Google Maps and adding ghost highways to them, just totally imagined roads, and he would show people the maps and they'd say huh i've never taken that road and he would have a hard time convincing people that it wasn't real because once you put it on the map people think there was something wrong with them and their lying eyes right so a few things on that thought um so those are uh, you know map makers especially ram mcnally's the, the one i first came across um have phantom streets and so i was a kid on a bicycle and you know i would look at maps and you know go to different neighborhoods i was still this is clearly pre-driving, so I was probably 12 or 13 years of age. And I found this street, um, Telelay Street, and I, I just, it wasn't there. And it just made me mad. And I was like, why is that there? And it wasn't until years later that I learned about Phantom Streets. And I went back and, you know, reading it again, it's basically Telelay is the name of the street, Telelay. It was there for copyright reasons, which is what a Phantom Street is. It's, it's intentionally put by a map company so that if their map is copied, they can point to this 
fact. It's like that, a canary. Yeah, exactly. I did do one uh, um, series of maps a few years ago. There's a, a project that's been underway for over a decade now in Atlanta called the Beltline, and it's um, Georgia Tech grad student came up with the idea of taking the old, uh, the four main uh, beltways that the rail rail system in Atlanta used to kind of divert from going through the center of the city. And so he's he presented the concept of a 22 mile pedestrian corridor also with light rail. And so uh, in the first year, they, they, they have subsequently always done art on the Beltline, but the very first project, and I was involved um, on some uh, components of it, but I proposed to do this thing called misinformation. And so um, the, the Beltline was very disorienting because people never used it. I mean, unless you were to walk on abandoned railroads, but now it was being paved and the backs of buildings that backed up to it were now very attractive, you know, co commercially viable structures. Uh, and so things were starting to shift towards, you know, the back door. But so I put up this uh, series of wayfinding signs and they had an I at the, the, the letter I, small letter I with a red line, red slash through it. So it was clearly indicated as misinformation. And so I took the, um, the streets of Atlanta and then inserted them into cities that have a water, um, you know, some elements of water like New Orleans with the Mississippi or San Francisco. Uh, Chicago and so each and New York was the, was the fourth and so each one again had the correct Atlanta streets and so I'd have to do some creative things like railroads couldn't just a roads couldn't just end in the in the bay I had to do a lot of alterations uh, but it was done to scale and so you know you would look at a map of New York it's like well I would I would walk those 20 blocks but I would never think to do that in Atlanta or and then they all came with sort of an over-the-top description at the bottom of of what Atlanta was going to be like now that you could just you could walk to the ocean, but all, things also lined up, uh, like in for Atlanta, I-75 lined up with the Golden Gate Bridge and I-85 lined up with the um, Bay Bridge and Grant Park. We have one in Atlanta lined up with Grant Park in um, Chicago and then in New Orleans, um, Atlanta is quick to um, raise its historical buildings. And so I thought, you know, the best place, Atlanta, where Atlanta would put its main intersection of, of the interstates would be right in the French Quarter. And so that's where I put it on, on that map. So they, they all came with, with an agenda on top of an agenda, but they were um, meant to be amusing. And, and uh, I took it as a compliment that uh, one of them got stolen. I think I proposed them back years ago, and I was, I was trying to get a grant uh, from the city to do them. And they were going to be all more international cities. And the critique I got written back was that these were unsafe and that they would lead people to, um, you know, to go to the wrong place or, or get lost. I'm like, really? Atlanta? We don't have a, we don't have a river. We don't have, uh, you know, a coastline. But anyways, they were, that was not approved then, but it was later. And that happens with a number of projects. You, you just keep at it until it finally finds somebody. I get what they mean. Like we talked about, so much unearned authority. People are going to think like, oh, I don't see a river. I guess I'm wrong and the map is right. Exactly. I don't know anything about making ceramics. So you carve them, fire them, paint them. Is that how you made stuff like Latitudes? My background is in ceramics. And so it's always been an interest in clay because it's an earthen material. And 
that to me seems like the perfect opportunity to to carve into it and, and make a, a map. I mean, if you think about it, the oldest maps in existence are the ones from Mesopotamia of, of where somebody was making a drawing of where they were going to put their crops, something to that effect. Those are the ones that have survived because, you know, there may have been paper maps that preceded that, but they didn't last. So clay is a, it's just a great material for, for that connection to the earth. And so I would work, with flat tiles for, for a long time. I did a whole series called Urban Tablets. And so they were different. This was in the 90s and they were just different cities that I would carve and put in the roads and the rivers. And they were all square. They were they started off around 13 square inches. And then I would use pretty bright colors, again, referencing Landsat images. Again, these were textured with coral and concrete and just different rough surfaces. Textured meaning you impressed them or you embedded the concrete and the coral? I impressed them. So everything was uh, was a negative of whatever I pushed into it. Uh, and so that, that was a great repository for glazes. So I would put glazes on then wipe them off, but they would stay in sort of the nooks and crannies. Uh, same thing for the road system. I would use like a eardropper and I'd get the glaze, black glaze in that. Um, and, you know, some of those ended up being large commissions for a hotel or something like that. But um, I shifted to making them on convex tablets. I just to increase the size a little bit. I mean, they're sort of based on what I can get in the kiln. And then also at a certain point, flat pieces of clay tend to crack. They, they need curvature. They need something else. I mean, you can cut them and you can make them as big as you want, like I did the piece at the, uh, at the Atlanta airport. But in terms of a single piece, I can't get much bigger than about about 14 inches. On a, well, no, I can go up to 18, but um, it, it, it's also how it fits into the kiln. But anyways, so there's something about the convex quality. You know, you're you're actually taking like a square segment of the of the earth and then uh, presenting that. So these are they stick out from the wall uh, between three and four inches. So they have sides to them, and uh, I've really enjoyed working in that format. And then I've, I've also stripped the color of it. On occasion, I'll do some with color, but I've, I've just stripped it down to black and white. And so part of that is maybe I'm thinking about the paper quality of mapping and, and just, again, stripping it of its color. But it's still textured uh, and usually a, kind of a graphite or gunmetal glaze for the black. The series that I've been working on for the last couple of years is called Choke 2, um, and so it's choke points from around the world. So these are geographic constrictions where, um, you know, you think isthmuses and straits and a few capes where it's very uh, significant in terms of shipping, especially oil, um, or, you know, it's, it has some historical significance of being a, a narrow or channel. So I've been doing those for several years. You know, there's nine main ones like the Strait of Hormuz, the Strait of Malacca, um, Gibraltar, Panama. But then I've, I've kind of branched out to about 36 others. Um, I just kind of keep keep going. And um, so they're in a way, they're typologies. I mean, I'm looking at these straits and isthmuses in just pure black and white form. And there's something, I don't know, they're kind of Rorschachty, I guess, is a, one way to describe them. Uh, you certainly can make it into a, a game for the viewer, but that's not so much my objective. I mean, there's certainly some folks that can identify the 
these choke points. But um, it, it comes from a different place, more typologies than, than a guessing game. A typology is if I shot 50 grain elevators, I'd be like, okay, I got a typology of grain elevators. Right. So the other typologies that I've really focused on have been pictograms. So, you know, you go to the bathroom, in most places you've got a either binary, you've got a male or female figure. When I talk about cultural signage, that's what sort of pulls me in. And it's not just pictograms, it's historical markers, you know, because historical markers are a lot like maps. They have a very, I mean, first off, somebody's paid some money to cast these in bronze. So that's the map maker. They're telling you how to feel or think about the landscape or what transpired here. So whoever won the war, they might have lost the battle, but they won the war, tells the story, right? And so it's that agenda that's cast in bronze or whatever the sign is made of. And that's where I would then come up and I'd rub a quirky phrase or a bits and phrases. Um, and I actually would transfer those onto maps that were about it. So there's sort of this redundancy. You had the plaque language then rubbed on top of a, like a seven and a half minute topographic map, which in essence obliterated part of the map. Yeah. So that's, a, that's the work I've done with wax oil rubbings, but I, I kind of went off a tangent from typologies. For Choke 2, uh, what is your map you're going off of? What's your platonic ideal of a map? Oh, I want to know what the Strait of Hormuz looks like. It's just so easy to go to, to Google Maps. You know, sometimes I use a Bing map. Depends when I'm trying to get, you know, I really want maps that don't have any words in them because when you try to print them out, the, the words actually take up space and they can create a peninsula that you, uh, that you don't want. But um, so I'll just often use Google or, or various other softwares that are just you know free and available what's interesting about what i'm doing since i'm working with the square i try to do it like where everything would be the same scale and that just doesn't work it just doesn't look right so it's it's really about how they look in a square format and so that i'll adjust my size and then so i do that and then i flip it over make it reverse and then i um, trace it and i trace it with a water soluble pen like a vis-a-vis pen that you use for dry erase and it was a fortunate mistake I made years ago. I had, for, for years, I would draw something on vellum paper and then I'd come in and put it on top of the clay and then I would just take a pen and I would punch the holes and make the line. And then I'd come back and then carve that line. But um, vis-a-vis because uh, pens, because clay is moist, I just put the piece of paper down and I can have all kinds of different colors telling me what to do here or there and then pull that piece of paper off and it's all transferred to the clay, I can actually texture the clay after the, that line is there, but then that line burns out. I carve, so every like coastline has relief to it. There's always an, a, an edge to it. And so the actual things you're tracing, are they imagery? Yeah, so it, it's a map image. Um, you know, it used to be a lot more difficult before you know, everything was online. I'd, I'd have to find maps and then I'd either have to work with that scale or I'd have to you know, put it through the Xerox machine and get it to the size, you know, make it bigger or smaller. But no, I can just do it all on the computer, but I still have to transfer it. And it, I'm literally taping pieces of paper to the screen in reverse and then taking that downstairs uh, where, where my clay space is. Do you prefer to work at larger sizes? Is it just whatever the kiln fits? Well, so the kiln is 24 by... 24 wide by about 36 inches. So the reason I work at 14 inches is that I can get two um, pieces out on one shelf. 
So it's always easy, it's always best to work off the dimensions of the kiln rather than the other way around. I did one series, um, well, it was called Legends, uh, Latitudes and Legends. So Latitudes was the, uh, at the airport were the, the long piece and then the individual cities. But on the other side, as I mentioned, was Legends. Uh, I didn't give it the name earlier, but that's what it's called. And so those were all the map symbols. But after I'd done that project, I started working, I was in a place where there was a larger kiln up in Winnipeg. I started a series called uh, limits. And so um, it was basically the size of the kiln, the, the biggest piece I could get in the kiln. Think about weather maps, all those wiggly lines that are on there that demarcate a front coming in. They have the little triangles that are on one side typically, or they alternate triangles. And so it's just taking those simple lines that are outdated before they even arrive to you in the newspaper of the day. And um, so I made these uh, probably two dozen, if not 30, of uh, these pieces called limits and they were they were kind of wormy like or eel like and uh as somebody described them they said creepy but creepy in a good way um but anyway so they were just uh, kind of looking at you know rather than a fixed border which i've clearly been focused on for years with the 49th parallel these were momentary limits of a front carving in stone something as ephemeral and useless as the weather report exactly so that was all in clay and again, they, they, you're right, they were carved. They had some intricate carving on them. But it wasn't until um, 2012 that I made a major shift. I was given the opportunity to exhibit uh, at a museum. I was given a, a it's called the Working Artist Project grant uh, from Museum of Contemporary Art, Georgia. I set two parameters for myself. One, that I wasn't going to work in clay. And two, that I would not use maps. I could make maps, but I couldn't use paper maps. And so I struggled for quite some time and it was getting closer and closer and I was trying everything. I was trying wrapping with even fake fur and then it just hit me like a wall. It's all about the bicycle. It's all about the inner tube. Um, like you, I'm a big cyclist. I started collecting um, bicycle inner tubes from bike shops here in town and they could not be more different in terms of how the materials respond. So clay, of course, once it's fired is, you know, hard. The rubber stays soft and if you ruche it, you know, if you bunch it up, squish it up together and make it kind of a lot of S forms in it, it's really squishy. And so um, I, I started working with repurposed inner tubes and creating maps with that. And so the exhibition was almost all maps, uh, wood pieces wrapped with rubber. So it has to be a substrate that I can staple into. I use a pneumatic stapler and um, lots of them. I've been through hundreds and thousands, hundreds of thousands of, of staples. So I can attach the rubber to the wood either in a flat way or I can ruche it where it bunches up. And so I've uh, created maps with, with that technique. And to me, you know, the black rubber is all about transit and mobility and in-betweenness. And then the, the clay is more about a fixed place. And so the original choke series, because it was about transit and, you know, moving these petroleum products, um, you know, like the Strait of Hormuz, 25% of the world's oil goes through that. Same with Malacca, 25% uh, of like, I think the world's um, commercial uh, products go through that strait. But anyway, I had done them, I had access to a uh, laser cutter when I was teaching at, at the university here. And so the first set were, were in rubber. 
positive and a negative version of this of the straight or the isthmus. But then um, I no longer had access, so I switched over to clay and then kind of started going from there. So that's why they're called choke twos, because the original chokes were, were rubber. But yeah, that, that whole conversation, like if you come in the studio now, it's it's basically black or white. Um, and most black is, is rubber. And, you know, I've kind of pushed that to farther things where, you know, just to design elements, just my love of contour lines. I've, the series called Topo Tablets is just those um, strips of ripped clay that I then make emulate contour lines. I mean, they don't have the space in between them like contour lines because they all have to touch each other, but um, they're on that convex tablet. It's hundreds of strips of clay. It is completely labor intensive. And, you know, so then I've taken that to do other things with, I've, I, you know, I'm not interested so much at all in functional ceramics, but I'll make a bowl. I'll take a, a, a half of a globe and make a hemisphere bowl. So I do it with the same technique of the ripped clay. And um, so just that, again, that love of the contour line. So again, it's that sort of flip-flop between place and in-betweenness or transit. Is most of your work right now commissions or you go down to the studio, whip something out, see who wants it? There's commissions along the way. And, and usually I've tried to direct uh, commissions to be work that I'm already producing. But if it's a specific location, oh yeah, you know, I've done that throughout the years for a hotel or corporate. I, I did have a really weird request one time, a vice president for a bank here in Atlanta. He said, okay, I want 10 or 12 cities that he wanted. And he, and he just reeled them out and just set them. And usually I try to get in the head of like the person who's commissioning. He's like, well, you know, what's the connection between these? And I could tell he wasn't really, I mean, I just got a vibe that like, this isn't the one to ask. And so I made them and he got them. And, uh, I saw him a couple of years later. I said, whatever, whatever happened to, to those tablets that you got from me? The, you know, it was like San Francisco, Charlotte, Atlanta. I can't remember the others, but he goes, oh, yeah, I gave this to Hugh McCall uh, for his war room. So he was a guy that put together um, Nations Bank back in the whenever that was, the 80s or maybe into the 90s. I can't remember. But it was for his war room of where he's assembling all these different banks from different cities and making a, a bigger bank. And I just got a chuckle out of that. But usually I know whoever's commissioning what their what their interest is. Map for the conquerors. Here's our targets. Oh yeah. They speak power. Like and some of the work has been used in movies. it hasn't come out yet, but Netflix is doing uh, Man in Full, which is a Tom Wolf book about a uh real estate developer. One of the main protagonists in the book is a real estate developer. And so they use some of the choke tablets in his office to kind of present that concept of power and authority. Alexander and his generals looked at a map. Same thing. Yeah. Yeah. For stuff like airports, hotels, is it a design firm that thinks, oh, I got to call Gregor? Or does it, you sending grant apps in? No, no, those, those are definitely not grants. Those, those are what pay the bills to do the stuff that, you know, that, that makes misinformation. And yeah, I mean, you got to pay to feed your soul. That's sort of the way I see it. And that's why, like, like the, the stools and the bowls and things like that, those, those go into my passion projects. And so the, the main passion project for the last few years has been focusing on the neighborhood where my studio is. So uh, 20 years ago, I, I bought a cinder block structure about three miles from home in this uh, community called Blandtown. And uh, so upstairs is the main part of the studio. It's like 900 square feet tall. And then downstairs is where I do the ceramic work and the, um, 
where the kiln is. Upstairs is where I do the rubber work and where my office is, and uh, I have room to display work and flat files and all that kind of good stuff. But um, so, so for the last several years, the the neighborhood has become my muse. It, it's been um, developed by a number of large developers and. As I mentioned, it was, uh, it was an older community. It was actually an African-American community that was founded during Reconstruction and has sort of a, unfortunately, a sad history in that it was undermined, undermined by racist zoning in the, in the 1950s. It was rezoned to industrial, and um, that caused a precipitous decline in the residential stock. There was between two and 300 houses here. And so... Um, it's uh, a story that's really important to tell. And so I put a uh, billboard, I had done a billboard project uh, on the Beltline, a different one, years before. And I had a, I just happened to have a billboard on the side of my, leaning up against the side of the, the house. And I was asked when they were painting one of the new houses they were building next door, um, if they could put the ladders up to paint the houses, paint the new house. And I said, sure. And so I just said, but you're gonna have to move the billboard out if, you, if it's in your way. And as the second they pulled that billboard out, I knew what I was doing. I hadn't, it had not crossed my mind. I made a big kind of, not cheesy, but yeah, that, that script, it says like Sea Rock City, you know, like a tourist script. It said, welcome to the heart of Blantown. The grid actually said Felix Bland, and he was the um, founder of, of Blantown. And it was done to the Indian head test signal, which um, I think you're too young to remember, but back in my day, uh, when, the, when television would go off the air at the end of the day and when it would come back on, they had RCA had this calibration thing, and it was a bunch of circles. You've probably seen reproductions of it, but it had a small Indian, uh, like a Native American head with feathers at the top of it, and that, that's the name Indian Head Test Signal. And so uh, I was using that for a couple of reasons. Uh, one was that um, I was making a statement that the old neighborhood has gone off the air and the new neighborhood is coming on the air. The main developer right around me who's building 45 houses was rebranding the neighborhood as West Town. And I was like, it is not West Town, it is Bland Town, and you gotta own it. And so the other reference was that, um, to telecommunications was that the transmission tower for WERD, which was the first African-American owned radio station in the country, uh, it was broadcast down on Auburn Avenue uh, downtown, but it was transmitted from this uh, tower that was just two blocks away. So that was the connection with that image. And then I had a patina of dirt that I had harvested from when they excavated for one of the houses. So that billboard went up just before the first people moved in. And um, it got a little bit of press, to say the least. Um, I was quoted in the article that I was not, it was not a middle finger to the developer, but that's the best way to say that you are giving a middle finger to the developer. They had tried to buy my property. They could never get to a price that, you know, I was zoned light industrial because I was still under the old, the old system. Um, and this was a house built in the 1940s. And I was able to interview the gentleman that, that built the house, um, Johnny Lee Green, and one of his sons. He grew five, five kids grew up in this house that was now my studio. Um, so it, it was really interesting, this whole history and, uh, that I never knew about. And, and so I did a number of oral history interviews, um, including some for StoryCorps. And then realized the story needs to be told in a number of different ways. And so I used a lot of the rubber to create, um, I, I created like a 
topographic map of the neighborhood that's made in wooden panels. And then I did the 21 houses that were still remaining when I bought this property 20 years ago. There's only three that remain now out of some 250 houses that were here back in the, in the forties. So, um, that, that whole history, um, has been interesting and I've been able to do a couple of public art pieces that, that relate to it and get the word out. And what's really been heartwarming is that the name is now sticking and that the neighborhood association, which is reformed is requiring developers to use the name Blantown. This, this has been a part of town where there's been really good restaurants and great design firms and, um, things like that. So it's, it's, it's one of those sort of ironic twists that it's anything but planned, but just that name, just in, in, t in terms of the residential market, just, I think, scares developers. Do you have any long-term cartographic theme projects that you'd work on if you had a big chunk of time? Yeah, what I'm working on now is tripoints. So where three countries come together, you know, they're very specific points on maps, but they're not necessarily a place you would ever visit. I mean, some are being turned into like, you know, ones that are easy to be in, like, I guess the Belgian, uh, what, Luxembourg, German border, something, something like that, for example. Anyways, where three countries come together, those are, some of those are being developed into cultural demarcated with flags and all that. But I've just been interested, especially the, especially in Africa, just the way Africa was demarcated, you know, in the Berlin conference in the late 1800s, just these, where these lines come together. So a little bit different than just a straight border with like the 49th parallel, more focused on these, on these tri-points. But I've kind of shifted and so I'm working with paint uh, on panel for those. So, you know, I think there's 150, over 150 um, tri-points. So if I were to do that, you know, I'm not sure, I'm still figuring out this, the size that I want to do this because the scale sort of changes of what I can do with the paint, uh, or it, actually it doesn't shift uh, when I go bigger. I can't make the same detail much larger. I'd like to make them the size that a person stands in. So about 20 inches is sort of what I was thinking, uh, or 50, I think that's like around 50 centimeters, something about that dimension of, of the ability to, to stand on that place. I mean, of course, we have four corners in the U.S. I had to visit. It's, it's the ultimate shrine. What's so great about it is it's on Ute and Navajo la, uh, land, which, you know, is just the anathema of Western demarcation. You know, you have these what were native lands, and yet here we've like put the grid on top of it. Do you have any artists or map makers you recommend people should check out? It's more about reading certain books about mapping, but I mean, in terms of a specific map, I would say Pierce's projection, just because it's a... Um, I can tessellate it. It, it, you know, it's, I don't know if you're familiar with that projection, but it's the Northern hemisphere is made into a square and the Southern hemisphere is made into a square. And then you can, if you sort of uh, shift what he's doing, you can put those together and it repeats endlessly. So I've, I've actually done a number of map carvings that use Pierce's projection. Probably one of the most significant um, maps I've seen uh, was done by Lewis Carroll in his poem, The Hunting of the Snark, which is the Bellman's chart, and that's a blank map. And he, the Bellman made it for his crew because they couldn't read maps. And so it just has the names of like East, West, North Pole. It just has, have you ever seen that map? So yeah, Google it. It's, it's the, Bellman's, the Bellman's chart in The Hunting of the Snark. And it's just that he's made the, the, 
the perfect map that everybody can read because it's absolutely blank. In terms of other contemporary artists, um, I think Lordi Rodriguez is doing some interesting mashup maps. Um, I don't, I'm sure you've seen Catherine Harmon's books, um, You Are Here, and then um, The Map as Art. Both of those are collections of, of artists that essentially map. Like one book that, that always sort of struck me was Mapping Reality by Jeff King, an, explore, an exploration of cultural cartographies. Um, some other books, The Lore of the Local by Lucy Lepard. And then of course, all the stuff that the Center for Land Use Interpretation is doing, some pretty cool stuff. And then, you know, Maya Lin, of course, she's best known for the um, Vietnam Monument on the Mall, but her work, her, her sculptural work uh, that deals with mapping um, is really, really delightful because just that, just her sense of, of, of how she works with three dimensions is really quite remarkable. Yeah, she's got these series of little hillocks out here at the Storm King Sculpture Park. Yeah, yeah, I was just up at Storm King last last um, summer. It's uh, I've always read about it, and um, um, it is uh, actually a, a group from um, Hambage, which is an artist um, residency in North Georgia. Um, it's about uh, six hundred square acres up this wilderness. It abuts the North Carolina border. Um, they took a group of people up to Storm King, and then when they came back, uh, I was actually commissioned to to produce a work for the for the campus. It just the only caveat was, well, besides a limited budget, was that it couldn't be at the main open area of the campus. It needed to be a destination, and so of course I picked the border. I went up to where the North Carolina Georgia border is without with within the campus, and I uh, inserted seventeen. Um, security mirrors that created a, a line. So you're just hiking in the woods and then you come across these phalanx, which is the name of the piece of, of convex uh, security mirrors. And um, so you're sort of confronted um, with yourself, of reflect, distorted reflections of yourself uh, in the piece. Um, yeah. You, you, yeah, you were asking like what other, what other works you were, I think you were asking more about Mapping, but the piece I just installed uh, at the Museum, uh, uh, Georgia Museum of Art, which is up in Athens, Georgia, it's a 35-foot piece, and it's made with um, 77 security cameras. Uh, each letter, uh, or it spells the word "welcome" uh, in a vertical format, and each letter is a different type of security camera. So, so you might have a um, a bullet camera or a a dome camera or even a, like a home surveillance camera for each letter and it's obviously oxymoronic um, but it's it's not just about you know hey you're welcome but you're also being watched it's, you know it's this whole conversation of our comfort with what our, our desire to be in a secure environment but but also our abhorrence to um, surveillance but I would love to make that piece um, interactive with actually working working parts and, and how a camera can take your your presence and transmit it and be in another place and you multiply that. So in a way it's still mapping uh, if it actually is trans, if it's transferring imagery. Um, and I find that pretty pretty fascinating. So I would love to, to continue working with, um, I don't know what it is about security. I, I think again, it goes back to authority um, and 
you know, mapping being so much a part of that. That's all the questions I got. I want to thank you for giving me the rundown and all your work. I appreciate it, Evan. It's been a, a, a opportunity to, to talk and, um, and also just to, to see what you've put together with all these other um, map makers. It's a really great service and just intriguing. I, I appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Always so much fun to find artists pushing the medium forward or sideways or just not doing the defaults. Yeah, finding the absurdities. Yeah, exactly. Have a great day, Gregor. Thank you. All right. See ya. See Gregor's work at gregorturk.com. G-R-E-G-O-R-T-U-R-K.com. For show notes and bonus content, visit veryexpensivemaps.com. This episode is brought to you by the Map Consultancy, supplier of professional, data-driven maps for your decks, reports, walls, and events. Visit themapconsultancy.com to see what good maps can do for you. I'm Evan Applegate, I'm a cartographer, and you should make your own maps. No one wants to see dull, ugly maps. If you want to get through to your customers, you need the best cartography money can buy. The Map Consultancy will create maps with your data and your branding, PowerPoint decks, annual reports, conferences and events, your office walls. The Map Consultancy does it all. Visit themapconsultancy.com and get the best maps today.